in college, you know, social relationships are huge. And so the idea of being rejected, the idea of being unlovable, unworthy, I mean, these are horribly painful, painful things at stake. And so the strength of these coping strategies that might be harming them, but are, you know, restrictive or, you know, really negative self-talk or a whole host of, of different ways of expressing this, it's protective because it's, it's the hope is that doing these things means leading to belonging, being loved, being included. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash speaks with Dr. Anna Sakara about food and body image. If you're interested in learning more, an episode about eating disorders and recovery is being simultaneously released with this episode. Hi, Anna. Welcome. Hi, Sarah. I'm really happy to be here. Today, we will be talking about eating and body image issues and such an important topic. We know that a lot of our students struggle with negative feelings towards their bodies and that can sometimes develop into disordered eating or even clinical eating disorders. And we'll be talking a lot more today about what those terms mean and your experiences as a psychologist working with students who are struggling in this area. But I wanted to start by asking you what drew you to this issue? What drew you to this area of work? Yeah, that's a great question and a a good place to start. My short answer is I'm a woman in our society. (laughs) Um, my, My longer response to that is I'm a white woman that that grew up in Southern California and, you know, have had my own experiences maneuvering our our current culture, well, current culture and, and past culture. I, like everyone else, am exposed to media. I'm exposed to the messages that we receive about our appearance, about our bodies, our value. I, too, live in our diet culture. And and I'm not immune to to the the little and the big ways that 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 hurts that hurts all of us. So you've had some personal experiences as a woman and a white woman in the United States, and all the messages that. And I'm also a white woman who's grown up in the United States. All the messages that we absorb from advertising and television, entertainment, social media, family, friends, you name it. Yeah, from well-intentioned and not so well-intentioned sources, absolutely. I wonder if we could then, just because we're going to be talking about some different aspects of this today, can you can you describe, like, what's the difference between disordered eating versus an eating disorder? Is it just the order in which we say those words or are there some differences? And then like, what do we mean when we talk about body image? Yeah. Yeah. 
So disordered or eating disorders rather, as as far as we know with, with research and everything today, that's a, a pretty complex biopsychosocial issue. You know, the American Psychiatric Association creates diagnostic labels for experiences that we have and eating disorders are a set of those experiences that pertain to how we eat and how we view our body. And there's a set of criteria for, for each of those. And, you know, if you meet those criteria, then you have this diagnostic label of an eating disorder. However, we know with human experiences, there's a spectrum for all of these, for all things, you know, with one end potentially being more severe and the other end being not severe, being mild or whatever the case might be. And so when we say disordered eating patterns, we're talking about somewhere else on that spectrum. So maybe you don't meet all the criteria for a particular diagnostic label, yet you're experiencing something that's creating distress, creating dissatisfaction, creating harm to your daily life. And so we kind of flip those those words around to be able to talk about this whole other part of the spectrum that that people are experiencing that's harming themselves, um, harming one another that don't necessarily meet, you know, this very specific definition of an eating disorder. So I can have a harmful relationship with food, with my body, with how I am living inside my body that doesn't necessarily meet that clinical threshold for a formal medical diagnosis, but I can still be causing a lot of harm to myself. Absolutely. And I just want to circle back and say we both identified as white women and we are both white cisgendered women. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's important in general. It's also important uh, for folks who just gender identity, how gender identity plays into body image and internalized notions of what an ideal body type looks like too. Yeah, that's a really important point. Because to your question of like, what is body image? There's a couple pieces that that go into that, but essentially it's how we view our body, how we feel in our body, um, what we think about objective facts about our body, our height, our weight, our size, kind of the reactions and thoughts we have to that. And, you know, how, how we view ourselves in comparison to, you know, society and, and whatever the, the dominant cultural standards are around our, our body and how we should express ourselves. So you run counseling groups for students who have some kind of struggle around disordered eating and or body image. And you also do one-on-one counseling with students. Does your group have a gen- gender requirement? It does. Okay. So it's, it's okay. That's what, why I asked that question is this can, this can and does impact everyone. Um, but we may be speaking today a little bit more about women so that, um, because that's been Anna's primary area of, of clinical work and focus. And we are both, as we said, cisgendered women. So we're speaking from that frame today, but don't want to exclude folks who don't fall into that frame and hope that 
hope that some of what we say is relevant. And if you're looking for more opportunities to hear people speaking about your experience, that you will seek those out. Yeah. I appreciate you making that distinction. A couple points that that come to mind around that is, you know, men are not immune at all to, to eating disorders and body image concerns. And, and the numbers with which men have these concerns, you know, has been growing. Some of the research says that it, it does relate differently to their sense of self-worth than it does for women, that it doesn't quite have the same impact. But I imagine each person's experiences are very, very different, but that kind of interacts with the way we're socialized. And there are differences along race and ethnicity in, in how we experience this as well. With some groups, you know, research has shown that, that white women, Asian women, Latinx women tend to be affected with negative self-image kind of in similar ways or that there aren't, you know, statistically significant differences, but that Black and African-American women are not impacted in quite the same way. And there's a whole host of possible reasons for that in terms of being excluded from, you know, these discussions and portrayals of Western European beauty, but things are shifting. Things are shifting too. And so um, shifting, meaning more diverse women are reporting struggles with body image. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, transgender individuals that, that trans women are, are reporting these issues. There's some data to suggest that regardless of the body that you, that you house, if you express yourself in a more feminine way, if you align yourself with more traditionally feminine roles, if you, um, if you value femininity, you tend to have increased impact to your sense of self-worth, your negative self-view compared to if you express yourself in a more androgynous way or, you know, have traditionally masculine roles. So it's, it's these feelings of self-worth um, and negative self image are sort of woven into like the feminine experience almost. I like how you said that, Anna, like traditionally feminine characteristics rather than that being linked to, you know, biological sex. So when students come to the counseling center and acknowledge some kind of challenge around eating body image what does that what do they say like how do students first bring that up and what are you curious about I'm just thinking it's one of those things that I have found students are concerned about but they're also often quite protective of their behaviors around maybe restricted calories or a lot of exercise or so they're they're concerned about their body image and they're concerned about their eating habits but they are also really invested in them on some level what's been your experience with that very similar i would say so when you come to the counseling center you know we would initially do what we call like a triage or a brief consultation referral appointment and you know we have a question about you know do you experience disordered eating patterns or body image concerns and the most common response is something along the lines of 
yeah, but you know, just as in line with the average student, I want to lose a few pounds. You know, I'm, I'm not happy with how I look, but just the same as everybody else, which speaks to how pervasive diet culture is. It's, it's almost hard to even identify anymore what is diet culture versus, you know, anti-diet culture, if you will. And the, the piece that you mentioned of feeling very protective around that is also real because of what's at stake. So these, these pressures from dominant culture exist and the messages that we get are, if you want to be included, if you want to belong, if you want to be loved, if you want to be a worthy human being, you have to fit into these standards or the more you fit into them, the more access you have to these things. And so for, for folks in college, you know, social relationships are huge, are huge. And so the idea of being rejected, the idea of being unlovable, unworthy, I mean, these are horribly painful, painful things at stake. And, and so the, the strength of these coping strategies that might be harming them, but are, you know, restrictive or, you know, really negative self-talk or a whole host of, of different ways of expressing this, it's protective because it's, it's the hope is that doing these things means leading to belonging, being loved, being included. People will want me if I can yes. meet this standard. Yeah. And, it, and I'm willing to suffer and punish myself in all kinds of ways to hope to achieve this belonging this connection, a sense of acceptance and approval by, by my friends, by the people around me. Is that's, then that's what's at stake, which is like the need for love and belonging and connection are fundamental, like basic needs. Yeah. Yeah. As, as basic as the need to eat food, I would, you know, like, cause we, we will die if we don't get love and belonging and connection. We will not grow. We will not thrive. They've done studies of babies in orphanages where they, you know, they might've gotten the nutrition, but they're not getting the love, the connection. So that's a very basic survival need. And so we come to pit one survival need for, sustenance and nutrition and energy, right, to support our activities of living against this other need for, for human connection and love. Yeah. And there are other, you know, things at stake too. Sometimes behaviors around restricting or binge eating and things are developed out of a need to cope with trauma out of a need for um, some sense of control because potentially environmental, uh, you know, factors aren't, aren't controllable. And so. Can you give an example of, um, you know, not, not anything too closely connected to someone you've worked with, but just a general example of a particular kind of trauma and how that might show up in these, 
you know, the need for control around food or body? Yeah, I would say one, one really common experience is sexual assault, whether it happens at a, at a young age or, you know, adolescence, young adulthood, suddenly our body is not a safe space and we can't, we can't necessarily, you know, get back at the person who inflicted this trauma. Um, and so sometimes that, that pain turns inward and, um, there's aspects of self-punishment, you know, trying to regain some semblance of control of your world through that. And so traumatic experiences are, yeah, are, are, I won't say common, but it's possible to, to develop disordered eating patterns and, and really, uh, harmful body image as a result of those experiences. What about family? Like where does, outside of sexual assault, how does family play into this for students? What have you seen? What are some common themes? Yeah. I mean, I, I can think of this for students and I can think of how this played out in my, in my own life too. You know, well-intentioned family members saying things like, oh, are you having seconds or, oh, uh, what are you doing in the, in the kitchen again? What are you looking for now? Or, oh, you look like you've gained a few pounds. Is everything okay? Or, um, oh, you look like you've lost some weight. You look wonderful. Or I think you've had enough for right now. You can't possibly be hungry still. Um, you know, all of these little ways that disconnect us from our own internal experience and that carry this message of shame of something that you're choosing to do right now is wrong, you know? And so, and so we learn that, that the way we're listening to our body, the way we are um, responding to our body's needs is, is not okay. is not right. And we feel shame and that shame, you know, that grows and leads to just worse and worse self-image. How do you think those messages about, eating and weight are connected to what we were talking about a moment ago about love and belonging and connection, especially coming from parents, I think often parents, right? But sometimes siblings or well-meaning answer uncles, not so well-meaning answer uncles, but connect the dots for me. So if I've got a parent who hovers over my behaviors in the kitchen and makes those kinds of comments to me. How how is that connected or not connected to my need for love or belonging? Yeah, great great question. When our caregiver or caregivers are the ones making these comments, they are splitting us up a little bit. And the message is whether they're saying it overtly or not, is that there's something wrong with you and what you're doing. And when we have that feeling of shame, we know that feeling is disconnection. That feeling threatens our belonging. And so when someone that is, you know, ideally tasked with loving us unconditionally is very much giving us conditional messages that hurts. 
that hurts. And we may not know it at the time, like that may not be how we are receiving it and understanding what's happening, but it kind of embeds itself a little bit, makes this home. And then as you continue growing up and continue getting these messages, you kind of keep adding them to this, to this compartment that you've made internally for these, for these messages. I like that image. Like it's, it just keeps slow. The file keeps slowly growing of, of signals that you aren't okay the way you are and you can't trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all very painful. Very, very much so. And so it's, it's, so it's interesting because this is helping me appreciate something that I don't know if I've drawn this connection so explicitly before myself is that one reason why it can be so difficult to really change these patterns of behavior around food and these beliefs about body image, these negative beliefs about body image is because people may feel like they, it's not that they're just so attached to the having the right quote unquote right body type. It's that they're the real attachment is that they're trying to get what they hope they would finally get if they had that ideal body type. You're nodding vigorously over there. Yeah. I'm thinking of Judith Rabinor is is a psychologist and, and does a lot of, of work with eating disorders and two questions that that she asks regularly in her work that I think get at this, not in these exact words, but essentially, what are you really hungry for? What are you really hungry for? And the other one is, if we weren't talking about food, what would we be talking about? And both of those, to me, get it, get it exactly what you were just saying. Do you ask those questions in your groups? In, in like different ways, but it's something that's in the back of my mind. But as you said, it's, it's hard to, like, we have to start where the person is. And if the person is holding on to, you know, these dominant beliefs about beauty, about appearance, about value, um, we have to meet them where they, where they are. Otherwise, we're going to be in this tug of war and, and these really, really important messages fall fall short. They don't get heard. How do you help students walk through those initial places where they are? Like what what is that in a nutshell? What does that look like to take someone who comes in and is just really really attached to what they're doing? They know they're suffering, but they're really attached to it. How do you begin to explore that? What does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's challenging. And I would say little by little, baby step by baby step, really getting to, to know the person as a whole person. Sometimes when we think about, you know, issues around eating or body image that can sort of eclipse other things. Um, and that may not be the reason that the person has come in, but little by little getting to explore, where did you, where do you think you first heard that about yourself? Or why do you think that that 
is really important to you having that particular size or being that particular weight what you know what does that mean to you what are the conversations that you have with the people around you about this what does that look like because that makes a huge difference in, in how we relate to ourselves so little by little little cracks experimenting with different ways of being you know we've talked about trying to not look at your reflections for a day or you know trying to not look at other people for a day and engaging in that social comparison allowing these bursts of seeing what it feels like to experience the world a little bit differently and being able to hold on to that or they come in with their own experiences where they were in different contexts with different people and noticed, you know, a change in their experience and being able to capitalize on that of like, yes, yes. Can you imagine what it would be like to feel that way all the time or, or majority of the time even? When you said that last thing, I was thinking about how I feel when I go to cities that aren't Gainesville, like bigger cities that, and you're nodding again. And so I'm wondering if you've had this similar experience, but like, uh, big cities that aren't just college towns and to look around on the streets and just see regular people, regular women, regular bodies, all kinds of shapes and sizes, colors, heights, clothes, and some part of me that I didn't even realize was holding its breath and always measuring myself against others just lets down its guard and and is like oh we're all just people here we're i'm not constantly falling short of some beauty ideal western white beauty ideal that i've internalized absolutely when you said that the like being able to let go i felt that relief just as you said that because absolutely we we aren't conscious of the fact that we are holding on to this all the time. And I think about my experiences in grad school in, you know, a, a Southern state and a predominantly white institution. And it was my first time living in, in, you know, the South in the, in, in the U S and also as a, as you know, an older student. So I'm in my mid thirties, I was doing my, my grad, my graduate degree, late twenties, early thirties. And, and being in an environment with 18 to 22 year olds, which, which I'm not a part of that cohort anymore, with a very narrow expression of being a white woman. You know, you had to, to fit in, you had to be a specific shade of tan, um, your hair had to be done you had to wear makeup. This was the first time that I went to sporting events and people were dressed like they were going to, I don't even know what, like this formal, like beautiful occasion. And I'm like in shorts and a t-shirt, sweating with a hat on, sunscreen, all this stuff, you know, very functional. <laughs> and I'm looking around like, why are people wearing high heels and, you know, these dresses and their hair is curled and, and everything. And so just that, that, um, and, you know, in that context, I do understand, I, I have a whole lot of white privilege as, as well that comes along with that. But even in that white privilege, feeling oppressed at the ways it was okay for me to express myself, to appear physically, and to, you know, on a biological level, have the opportunity for a mate, 
if if this is the the pool of of people that can be icky to think about but you know that's that's where the brain goes i really appreciate you sharing that part of your experience and can personally relate to a lot of it even though i was always from the south and so never got to to see that through a different lens from from an outsider's perspective you know i i always felt like i fell short of those beauty ideals and when i look back at pictures of myself at 18 20 i just I don't know. It's interesting because that was 20 years ago now, but I see, I see someone who physically really did in a lot of ways fit into that super skinny, just petite, like white skin, all, you know, like, and long hair. And yet all I felt was ugly and like I was falling short and I didn't belong and I wasn't getting it right. And I didn't have the exposure to, I didn't grow up having access to things like makeup or hair styles. Like my parents were very protective and conservative around that. And they really, they didn't want me to wear tank tops. And I, I got messages about like, don't, don't play up my looks growing up, but, and so I felt kind of backwards as a, like when I got to college and I saw all of the styles and just how, um, anyway, I'm, there's a lot to unpack there from my past and it is very, very difficult to emerge into young adulthood, liking our bodies and liking who we are inside of our bodies. That is a real challenge, even though my stress and my issues didn't show up in the form of eating, they came out in other ways for me. Yeah. I think you actually hit on two really important points there. One to me is the travesty of how much time we lose loathing ourselves and how much energy we could have devoted to something else and what it could have been like if we felt great about ourselves. Like what situations would we have put ourselves in, taken risks at, you know, really gone for if we felt good about ourselves. The other piece in there is this huge lie, this huge myth that diet culture and the beauty industry perpetuate that it is our size and how we measure up to this ideal that dictate how we feel about ourselves. When in reality, these things are almost not even correlated at all. That it is entirely our mindset, how we relate to ourselves that create things like pleasure with ourselves, you know, joy with ourselves, feeling good. It's not, did we fit into this size? Do we measure up in this way? Because you will see countless examples of people that fit into this ideal that are miserable and other examples that don't fit into the ideal at all that are the most confident, happy, joyful people you've met. It, it really, truly doesn't come down to what you actually look like. And that's the biggest lie and crime of, of this, whole, this whole culture. Have you been present with people 
as they have that insight and not just like intellectually, but as they are realizing that these templates for how we're supposed to look are not ever going to bring them the joy, happiness, love, acceptance that they're looking for? Have you, have you seen people realize that for themselves? Sometimes, um, but it's not as cathartic as you would want it to be because these, this is so hard to let go of. Like it, it's, it's almost like each person that they encounter that doesn't fit this ideal, but is confident is, is the exception to the rule. And somehow they figured out something or, you know, we can construe it as they are lying to themselves or to others. You know, the, the, the mechanisms of diet culture are so incredibly strong that yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so disappointing though. (laughs) And I should know better because I, I was thinking about sometimes I've done this thought experiment with students I work with where I asked them to imagine that they could clone themselves and release their clone onto campus and watch as their clone. The only thing that's different between themselves and their clone is that their clone really likes themselves the way they are. And imagine if they could kind of unleash this person into the world and observe what that is like. And I always think like, oh, this is going to be a really important insight And instead, what students say is, my clone isn't allowed to like themselves. It's not okay. They don't get to like themselves because they're too fat or they're they're too short or, you know, they're they're not doing well in biochemistry. My clone doesn't have a right to walk around this campus liking themselves. Wow. Yeah. Because even if I like myself, other people won't like me. And then I'm just deluded right? Then I'm just, I'm out of touch with reality. And so I really need to rein that back in because it's dangerous. It's dangerous to walk around liking myself the way I am. Absolutely. And there is some truth to that. There is some real truth to that, that when we see people that are confident and happy in themselves, there's something that happens sometimes where we want to take them down a peg or two. Like it's, you know, it's, that's the, the other flip side of this. Like we compare ourselves to others and we create this hierarchy. So if somebody's better than we feel really crappy, if we're better than, then there's a sense of superiority and that's crappy. So like, it's, it's, it's dangerous on a lot of, of different levels, but I think what you're, what you're hitting on is, um, yeah, that they might feel that way, but the other people around them won't accept them. And so if we're going to do this, we have to kind of do this together. We have to revolt against this system together. And that's not to say that there aren't pockets of, of people that you can absolutely connect with. You can make, you know, small shifts in your social circles that make a really big difference. Um, but this feeling that it's it's this monstrous, oppressive system and that to to overcome it we do have to do this together is that part of the power of working on eating issues and body image stuff in a group setting is that part of the power of that instead of doing it one-on-one with a counselor i think the 
you know, the peer experience with this is, is so valuable. To hear one another's stories and, and to be able to engage in compassion with somebody else and then to try and turn that same compassion to yourself, to receive it from others and to be able to cultivate self-compassion is huge. And it's so, I mean, the how quickly um, the women in this group come to, to aid one another is beautiful. And that next step is how do you turn that towards yourself? How do you come to yourself, like to aid yourself, you know, that, that quickly and willingly and wholeheartedly, that piece feels really hard, um, but is, is absolutely a part of this, this work. Makes me think in that clone example, I will follow up and say, well, if you saw someone else, not you, not yourself walking around and had that, had that confidence and felt good about themselves, would you want to walk up and take it away from them? And they're much less likely to say that they would take that away. And another, you know, another question that I ask around this is to imagine being young, like a little kid and how, if we weren't traumatized as little children, little children tend to have actually really outsized self-confidence, right? We think we can do things that we have no idea how to do yet. And that's, that's adaptive, right? If I, if I have confidence in myself, I'm more likely to try new things and learn about the world. Little kids, again, if they have not been traumatized, if they've received basically loving and encouraging messages, they tend to have pretty good self-esteem. And at what age would you want to take that away from a child and make it conditional? At what age do they need to know that life isn't really like this and actually it's about the size of their thighs? Yeah, ideally at no age. And I think sometimes students can see that, like that it, yeah. right? Sometimes we can say, gosh, and at what age was that taken from you? Yeah. And it's shocking how the responses are sometimes so young. You know, students remembering eight, nine, 10 years old going on a diet or being made to feel self-conscious about their bodies and how they look and worried about if they'll be rejected by their peers or bullied. You know, if you're bullied, it's your fault. So change your body so you don't get bullied. And I'm also thinking about how race and gender presentation intersects with this as well. That if you, you know, like as a, as a white cisgendered girl, I didn't start encountering messages about negative messages about my body until I was eight. But if you're born into a black body, you might, you are picking up on messages just about blackness from as soon as you can start absorbing messages. Yeah. Yeah. I actually just started this book that I think you would, you would really love. It's called The Body is Not an Apology. Um, so it's by Sonia Renee Taylor, who is a Black queer woman, poet, activist, writer, speaker, and she started this movement a while back, I think in 2011, called The Body is Not an Apology. And she wrote a book, um, it came out in 2018, and it's The Power of Radical Self-Love. 
So it's about, um, and she kind of merges all of these pieces of, you know, the, the oppressive systemic nature of the society that we live in, how race, gender expression comes into that, and, and how do we radically love ourselves for who we are um, and love one another and allow ourselves to freely be who we are in whatever race, shape, size, gender, being able to, to realize all of that fully for ourselves. The word that comes up as I hear you is liberation. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. I, that, there, that there are advantages to keeping us from loving ourselves and there are advantages to keeping us from loving one another in a in a world and a system that profits off of us being unhappy and like not feeling fulfilled as we buy more things and so and so yeah to do that work is you said radical and also revolutionary and and ties back into these other movements of working to liberate all peoples of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we were even to just take the beauty industry, if you will, diet industry, we're talking estimates are around 40 to $60 billion industries. So there are people lining their pockets based on us not feeling okay the way we are. Yeah. As a, as a last kind of point for today's conversation, I wonder if you could share a little bit about where you are with your body these days, Anna, and if there's anything that a practice or any, I know you said it's a lot of little steps along the way, but any practice or any concept that you would want to leave our listeners with? So, you know, my relationship with my body is an ever evolving relationship and I give myself grace and patience to, to have that because I think all relationships ebb and flow. We're, we're dynamic creatures. And so um, there is no attaining a perfect relationship with with our body and that feels that feels important to to name there's a couple different things that i've that i've done along the way um, and that i do currently and some of those are you know internal changes and some are external Um, so if i can just name a few things i i stopped having conversations with with my my girlfriends i stopped having conversations about my weight and how I felt about myself and how I felt about my own, you know, health or whatever that means, you know, for me. Um, And that's not to say I don't have a few, you know, really, really close trusted friends where I can, I can share when my relationship with my body is not going so well, you know. Um, But that used to be like almost this required part of the conversation. It was like, we'd start off by everybody kind of admitting uh, how they felt about their bodies or what, you know, trying to show that we were working out or doing something. I don't know. It was a very, um, 
and these are all wonderful friends. So nothing, you know, not to speak of, of them, but just the way that diet culture infuses itself. I also asked, uh, you know, family members to stop commenting on my body and on things I'm eating. That doesn't need to be, that doesn't need to be a part of the conversation. It really, really doesn't. Um, How did they, can I, just such a big one that I don't want to let that go without probing for a second. How did they respond to that request? Yeah. Sometimes confusion and sometimes just real quiet acceptance of, okay. (laughs) But the, in those moments, I don't necessarily want to have to explain the whole, you know, why you shouldn't have to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, sometimes confusion and sometimes just acceptance. And, and I reserve my energy to not having to defend those requests. Another big thing that I did is I stopped looking at other people. There's this kind of blaring message in my head that other people's bodies are none of my business. And I, I really hold myself to that because there's no purpose. There's no purpose in, you know, I, of course I look at other people like when they move or I, you know, I, I survey my surroundings and things like that, but I am not dissecting people's bodies when I see them or when I pass them by. You're not putting yourself in a pecking order in relation to their bodies either. Exactly. It hurts me and it hurts them. It's just harmful. There's no, there's no purpose to it. And that has made a huge difference because that impacts us on a daily basis on these, you know, little minute to minute things that we just do that we hurt ourselves um, or can hurt ourselves uh, when we do those comparisons. And the other things are, are sort of like big buzzwords, but are really meaningful to me. So um, mindfulness embodying my experiences rather than objectifying myself, gratitude, being able to take stock of what my body allows me to do in a given day. Um, You know, and some days that differs. So sometimes my wrist really hurts and I can't do something the way I used to. And, you know, being okay with that and other days feeling really proud of accomplishing all my chores or making it through the workday successfully, you know, our body is what ties us to the present moment. And so being really grateful that I get to experience each day in this body, that this body is what allows me to do that. And compassion, like really just having to bring a whole lot of compassion to myself and to the times where I don't feel so great and, and you know, being okay with that too, that that doesn't mean the beginning of the end or anything like that. Yeah. Bringing a lot of, a lot of self-love. I appreciate what you're talking about because these are all processes, not products. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they are journeys. They take, they take time. They take a lot of time. And sometimes I'm not even fully aware that I'm doing these things, but it's, it's, the more you practice it, the more they kind of start to operate on their, their own, you know, and. Um, well, just as this, just the same that all these unchecked, unexamined processes learn to operate on their own. At first, it takes a lot of mindfulness and intention, but it can become more automatic in the background 
right? Like you've, you've drawn some lines for yourself. You've set up some boundaries internally and externally, right? And at first, probably it takes tremendous effort to uphold those, but like anything, it gets easier. Yeah. Yeah. And I can sense when I'm maybe slipping a little bit, you know, and with mindfulness and embodying my experience, I'm more aware of that and can shift course. Right. And with compassion, you don't have to beat yourself up over it. It's not about this perfect realization. It's, it's right about the ongoing process. Yeah. I'm really grateful for this conversation. One of the last things that I will add, because pleasure, just recognizing that I am allowed to feel pleasure and that the way that we, the way that I feel pleasure is through my body. And somewhere along the line, I don't even know how young I was that that was probably puberty, age of, you know, around puberty. I think a lot of times females um, are taught that we, we need to subjugate our, the pleasure of our bodies and that it's dangerous. And just even to, like, I love to cook, but something that's always bothered me is that I, and I love food, but I just eat so quickly that I barely taste something that I spent two hours creating and going to the grocery store and thinking about. And then I sit down and I just scarf it. And it's like, it's beyond mindlessness. It's like some inability to just slow down and receive the pleasure of the food. And so that it's, I could cry like it's cause it's, I don't know, to me, it sounds so simple, but it's like starting there, you know, starting there for, for me that feeling pleasure is, and that I'm allowed to feel pleasure and feel so healing as a, as a woman. That's beautiful. And I think that piece of slowing down is, is so crucial in not just combating diet culture and, and dominant beauty standards, slowing down feels revolutionary in itself. Like to not buy into the sense of urgency, to not buy in, you know, to this productivity standard and, and all of these things to slow down to feel, which can be scary. It can be really scary for people, but yeah, being able to slow down, sense what's going on and decide like with intention, what you want to do in a given moment. That seems like a really good place to pause. Thank you so much, Anna, for this conversation. Yeah, my pleasure, my pleasure. And I'm aware that, yeah, that there's so much that we didn't get to, to chat about this time, but I really, really appreciate you, know, you and, and having space to have this conversation. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.